Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there, and welcome to the Stock Club podcast. I'm James, and with me this week is my Wall Street co-founder and chief investor, Emmett Savage, and our head analyst, Rory Caron. Today, we're talking about the new generation of TikTok traders and the massive risks they're putting themselves under what a new president will mean for the US stock market, and our red-hot, risky contrarian elevator pitches. So guys, earlier this week, one of our followers, Kieran Trainer, tagged us in a video that's doing the rounds on Twitter, showing a couple explaining how they make money from home by trading stocks on Robinhood. I was going to try explain the video, but we might just put in the audio here and let you listen for yourself. So basically, I just trade stocks on an app called Robinhood, which I left a link in our bio if you want to check it out. It's free to download, free to sign up. They actually give you a free stock, so they're paying you to sign up. Um, But again, not sponsored. And I know trading sounds intimidating. Here's my strategy in a nutshell. I see a stock going up and I buy it. And I just watch it until it stops going up and then I sell it and I do that over and over and it pays for our whole lifestyle. Um, If you're wondering how much you can make doing this, in this month I turned about 400 into 14,000. And in this month I turned less than 1,000 into 20,000. And honestly, my favorite part about this isn't even the amount of money you can make, but just the fact that we don't have to go to a nine to five job. Yeah, we can focus on things that we actually enjoy doing. So if you have friends that like want to make money from home, you can tag them or send them a link. Or if you make money this way, share it in the comments so other people know like there's more people doing this now. So timeless advice there from that couple on Twitter. Rory, buying a stock when it's going up and then selling it before it stopped going up. Why didn't you think of that? <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm not very good at that, obviously. Um, so simple. I, like. I just kind of am speechless after listening to that audio. It's yeah, Amish, you were you were around doing the doing the rounds during the old tech bubble. Does that sound vaguely familiar to uh, circa 1999? I actually thought it was a wind-up. When I watched it, I thought, no, that's not real. But, you know, uh, I shudder to admit I've come around to believing that the couple in that video are actually handing out heartfelt advice. Yeah. And that is exactly dot comish. Yeah. I I went in and watched a few of that guy's other videos. And in one of them, or in a few of them, actually, he says, don't take my advice and I might be an idiot. And um, he might be onto something there. But all joking (laughs) aside, uh, this video is part of a growing trend on TikTok where we see amateur investors pitching what some might consider very risky stocks. Um, and even pitching option trades on the app. Um, Anne-Marie, one of the new analysts here at My Wall Street, wrote a great piece on this last week. Rory, I wanted to get your take on it, though. What do you think about this younger generation of investors gaining exposure to the market like this? Um, I think it's great that young people are getting into investing anyway. Uh, this is probably not the best way to do it. I think that if you study the history of the stock market, you'll see that this isn't a new thing particular it's coming in a new form with new mediums like tiktok um and robin hood and kind of the the cheap discount brokers free trades that people are exposed to now and the you know some would say the irresponsible lending that goes on through some of them in terms of margin for options and things like that 
but you know the, these things always end badly <laughs> over the yeah. long term and um, the, you know uh, that that just has been shown time and time again what's i mean it's interesting at a time when people are that young that they're using what is kind of small amounts of money i suppose to take very high risks in something like the stock market and you know you can always you can always increase returns by increasing risk that's the that's how the the risk reward payout turns out and for a lot of them it might be a very cheap lesson in the long run you know they might find out very quickly that this isn't the way to do things and and hopefully readjust i hope it doesn't turn them off investing altogether that they think this is the only way to do it but uh you know it's i suppose it's better that they're trying it with small amounts of money and yeah. it's but i mean it's just doing a little bit of due diligence on even the people that are giving them the advice would be a good starting point I think yeah because they're saying that your failures are your biggest lessons so it might be good to get those lessons in pretty early um, I mentioned option trading yeah. there Rory too and can you kind of briefly explain just for anyone who might not know what option trading is and, and why it carries a little bit more risk than just normally investing in stocks well, when you're buying an option you're not actually investing in a business uh, you're buying it what's called a derivative uh, it's a contract which derives its value off another financial asset and that financial assets is typically in an option another stock so what you can do is essentially you can pay for the option you can buy for the option to buy a stock at a certain price in the future you're not committed to having to buy the stock at that price but if you wish to you know it's and you can get options for multiple for various lengths of time but if at the time that your option expires and the stock hasn't hit that price tag your options becomes worthless so you could end up spending a couple of hundred or maybe even a couple of thousand dollars and something that materializes to zero uh, just because it hasn't reached a particular price point yeah. with buying common equity you know you're not you're not adding in that that short time frame typically you can you know wait a stock can go up and down you can go much lower than you bought it for much higher than you bought it for but you know if you're thinking out in five or ten years you, you don't have that kind of time where you have to where something could suddenly become zero you know out of nowhere yeah um emmet's you've i mean emmet buys you do some option trading emmet don't you yeah i have i mean it's not something that's core to my investment philosophy and i think i'd make about at most one or two option trades in a year in fact that's on a busy year i'd say over the last five to ten years i've probably done about mm, I'd say by 10 options trades and the majority of them have worked out because I only go that route when I see it as a no-brainer where something is just so obviously broken that I decide to leverage what I've got for that particular opportunity. So yeah, I use it. And as I've said before, it's it's uh, it's analogous to English mustard on a dinner plate. You put a tiny amount there and it will make or break your dinner depending on how you use it. I've heard that analogy before. I, I've got, I've got an idea. I've got an idea for a new uh, TikTok video of Emma trying out different mustards. <laughs> Some of the stuff that's going on with TikTok and TikTok investors is a Twitter account that I follow, which kind of um, aggregates the best, or in this case, kind of the worst. The worst are the best of the TikTok investing community. Um, and but then like just some kind of mad stuff happens. Like there was a stock that Carol Baskins from Tiger King mentioned yeah. uh, that ended up something like two hundred and fifty percent. Now and that wasn't that wasn't on TikTok. I think she did it on a cameo video. You know, one of these these platforms where people can pay people to give shout outs to things. So <laughs> was she? I don't know. Was she paid to say this by someone? Yeah. And Could she get done for stock manipulation? <laughs> I don't, well, like she's not. 
she's a private individual acting <laughs> someone just asked her to, to say the name of this stock and it went up like 250% Joe Exotic why, trying to frame her again why, <laughs> why anyone thinks Carol Baskin has any like expertise in the stock market I don't know but that's the kind of mad stuff that's happening on it's, TikTok it's like recently when Elon Musk tweeted by Signal wasn't it and, and this company called Signal went up I don't know how many fold in value and he was actually talking about the messaging app which which kind of just shows people not really doing their due diligence on these stocks um, Emmett <laughs> something Rory mentioned earlier was was the dot com crash and which is probably the most famous bubble of recent years is there any parallels you can see about this or does this kind of get your a bad feeling in your gut when you see people behaving like this Mm, I, yes, I, I certainly do have a bad feeling in my gut about some of the behaviour I see. And uh, and I have to check it because, you know, history doesn't always repeat itself. So what I don't want to draw too many parallels uh, between what we're seeing now in the late 90s, because the great conclusion of the of May 2000 was that the House of Cards came tumbling down. And, you know, by kind of going there again, it's it's as if to suggest that everything is about to take a tumble, which it may not do. However, I do think that uh, what we're looking at is the exact same human behaviour just presenting itself in new channels. Yeah. And, and uh, for example, uh, Robin Hood now has led the way for a new era of stock investors which is a good thing uh, and it's primarily led by the fact that they're mobile only or as far as I know mobile only or mobile first and and that they have zero commissions and you know about uh, I suppose maybe 15 years ago there was an online broker called Zeco, which I think was acquired by Ally or Ally I never know how to pronounce them A-L-L-Y Ally and um, they were zero commissions yeah. so um, so they're, they're like what Robin Hood is doing has been done before. Um, what what we see on TikTok or what we see on Twitter with regard to public commentary has been done before in the late 90s. You could go into Yahoo Finance, any publicly listed business had a discussion board um, and on those discussion boards you could get involved with other people to discuss that stock and it was usually, it was crazy stuff like there was, there was people trying to, there was a mix of people who had done some reasonable due diligence on a stock with those people who are just screaming buy, I know somebody who works in here and they've told me they're about to acquire XYZ Corp and this is going to be ginormous so, so you know, TikTok as a medium for me doesn't resonate because I'm 46 years old I just don't use it my sons use it my younger son uses yeah. it and in fact you might think it's very uncool for, for me to even admit that so um, like really it appeals to a younger generation but I was looking on the 31st of December just gone by uh, TikTok the hashtag investing had, had amassed 1 billion views yeah on on TikTok. So that's a lot of mind space occupancy it's it's earned. And from those billion views, there is unquestionably a subset who for that reason and for TikTok existing will be lifelong stock investors and will make mistakes and will lose money and will kind of learn the hard way, but they will reemerge and actually changed their life as a consequence of interacting with these platforms. And, you know, there's creators on TikTok who are explaining the stock market in fun and snappy and short and, you know, image-led ways. And, and that's a good thing, I think. Um, and, and, uh, and alongside the billion views that the hashtag investing had on TikTok at the end of December, uh, the hashtag stock talk had uh, about a quarter of a billion uh, wow. views. So, you know, there is a lot of uh, new investors 
who haven't even yet hit their teens who are taking an interest in this and yeah that's good i just really hope as rory says that lessons are learned with small amounts of money and that ultimately people start to separate a uh, signal from noise which is what we're here to do. We deliver a signal and we leave the noise out there. Very nice plug to get in there at the end. If you want to read more about this, make sure to check out Anne-Marie's article that I mentioned. What is option trading and why is it all over TikTok? That's in the My Wall Street app right now. Let's move on then. I p- should probably mention that we're actually recording this episode on Wednesday, January the 20th. And as we're speaking, the inauguration of Joe Biden as the 46th president of the United States is taking place. Barring any more attempted coups, this inauguration should see a new commander-in-chief taking over that has many different views on issues compared to his predecessor. From an investor's point of view, we'll be looking closely at things like increased corporate taxes, COVID stimulus packages, big tech regulation, and the potential of things like the Green New Deal to be resurrected. Rory, what do you think are going to be the biggest changes that investors notice with a new administration coming in? Yeah, with the disclaimer, and I think Emma's going to switch it further on about how the president actually has very little impact on the stock market on average. Over the short term, things you mentioned already, there is a stimulus package which the Biden administration is proposing, which is going to be $1.9 trillion. Um, sounds like an awful lot of money, but it's a big problem that they're facing at the moment. Yeah, Part of that package is uh, increased unemployment benefits, um, which began actually you know, back last March when the pandemic first hit, but expired uh, so they were giving people $600 extra uh, um, a week on top of their statewide employment, unemployment benefits. And that expired. Um, they then did it, they did it at $300 a week one. Uh, and that ex- that's set to expire in March. And now this new one is going to be an extra $400 on top of that. This again, scheduled to end September. I don't particularly understand the idea of starting and stopping all these programs. The yeah. idea of ending unemployment ins- insurance is typically to encourage people to go back to work. Doesn't really make much sense when there's no jobs to go back to. Another part of the plan, one that was very popular with Americans, is to send everyone a, a check essentially. And, and there's supposed to, there's looks like there'll be a check of fourteen hundred dollars on top of the six hundred dollars that was already paid out earlier this year. Now that's something that absolutely could impact the market over the short term because it's not targeted relief. Um, it's something that you know p- politically goes down very well. Who doesn't want to see money being dropped into their bank accounts? Uh, but if you don't need that money, you know, I mean, really, they should be. If I was in charge, or you know, and God for sake, uh, <laughs> you, know, you would. Uh, yeah, I feel like that money could much better be spent on people who really do need it. And uh, you know, back in at the start of the pandemic, it was a rush. It was just get people in money's pockets. Don't worry about, you know, figuring out who needs it. Just make sure there's money going around so people aren't starving. And funnily enough, just sorry to cut across you, Rory, but that goes back to what we were just talking about, that a lot of the kind of recovery of the stock market was related to the fact that a lot of these people weren't struggling on a day-to-day basis. So invested the money, the, the check they got into the market. Yeah, no, and this is, I was right about to come to that. The fact Sorry, is that I, I, I ruined people, your, your lead in yeah, there. Yeah, you did kind of, whatever. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, an awful lot of, an awful lot of people, you know, as, as much as there was huge job losses when this pandemic kicked off last year, an awful lot of people didn't lose their job. An awful lot of people were able to work from home. And those people who did end up working from home were typically saving money on things like commuting, you know, going out to eat in restaurants, going out to bars, getting their lunch out. So getting money dropped into their accounts was money that they really didn't need. And what were they going to do with it? You either save it, you consume it, or you invest it. And a lot of people did decide to invest. And we see, 
data that shows that when those checks go in, people started trading more stocks across all income groups. Um, recipients traded roughly 30% more in the first 10 days of January than at the start of December. That was right after the second check, round of checks came out. Uh, and trading among those with annual incomes of less than $75,000 jumped 53%. So, and you see this across various uh, data sets like volume in penny stocks, for example, is topping 400 billion shares a day lately. That's up sixfold from a year ago. And you're seeing the options markets with second busiest day ever for bullish equity calls just last week. So all this, you know, is feeding into the short term yeah. impacts on the market. Uh, if you give people money, they have to do something with it. And a lot of people are going to penny stocks, they're going to options trading and it's pumping up prices very high. Over the longer term, it is more uh, opaque. You know, even though the Democrats control both houses of Congress now and the presidency, Biden hasn't got a blank check to enact whatever policies he wants. You know, there's there's a lot of well-publicized infighting in the Democratic Party between the more progressive wing and the centrists. Someone like Joe Manchin, for example, who's a Democratic senator from West Virginia, I believe, you know, with a one-vote margin in the Senate, he now holds a huge amount of power when it comes to controlling and shaping policy. Yeah. Um, However, some have argued, and I wrote a piece about this, I think, was it last week or the week before, that Biden could actually achieve an awful lot in his administration through essentially enforcing laws that are already on the books, especially when it comes to antitrust. And this is something that we did see a lot of big movement at the end of the year. That includes, you know, just pressing the heads of government bodies that he now controls to take action against anti-competitive behaviour. And you'd be looking at the old... Offenders, Amazon, Facebook, Google. And this is something that you know, Scott Galloway would say could oxygenate the economy, you know, give, you know, you know, trickle down economics, not to people down in terms of the class, but actually let smaller companies strive. And, you know, even in our business, we've seen the benefits of that already with that. Yeah. That, that cut that Apple made to their um, to the commissions that they're taking, that was a, a proactive move that they took to in, in order to kind of avoid bigger scrutiny. So, you know, that kind of thing can grow the economy can equalize things quite a lot and you know more so the biden campaign did focus around this idea of trying to heal a divided nation so from an outside observer that seems like it's going to be very difficult going forward with legislation things like the green new deal are pretty partisan people you know one side hates them the other side likes them and there's a constant fight to get those things across the line however you know there is kind of one thing that is broadly popular across the political spectrum in America, and that is the idea of breaking up big tech companies. Yeah. Uh, there was a recent poll by Data for Progress that showed 74% of Republicans and 80% of Democrats were either very concerned or somewhat concerned about monopolies. Uh, and something like two thirds were up for the idea of breaking up the big companies. And again, there was no real significant democratic republican divide on that question so that's actually like something that the the administration could come in and become a kind of trust busting administration similar yeah. to the you know fdr or teddy roosevelt yeah interesting it, it could be something as well that actually maybe hopefully heals a lot of the rifts too if they go in with something that has that cross-board support um emmett i want to come over to you and in our chat with Morgan Housel a few months ago, I remember him mentioning that the effects of a sitting present on the market and the economy at large are often quite exaggerated or overstated. Would you agree with that sentiment? 
Oh, completely. And in fact, according to Jeremy Segal, the author of um, Stocks for the Long Run, which is a terrific book that I recommend people read if they're into the subject, uh, according, according to Segal, uh, Wall Street's obsession with politics is, is really misplaced. And he says, and I quote, bull markets and bear markets come and go, and it's more to do with business cycles than presidents. Yeah. Now, when you look, I had a look at how stock markets have performed under different administrations. And Forbes uh, wrote a piece just a few months ago that stacked ranked the S&P 500 returns uh, beside uh, the different presidents that were in term. And the number one performing market uh, as coinciding with a president happened to be Bill Clinton, which is 93 to the years, years 93 to 2001, which is really the run up to the dot com Mm. bubble. So when you kind of read down through the league table of presidents or rather political parties in office, um, I, when stacked ranked against the S&P 500 returns, there is no pattern. Mm. Like there, there there was a common conception, misconception, I should say, that, you know, markets perform better with Republican presidents, which is completely incorrect. That's not correct. No more than the opposite is correct. You can't actually infer that one particular party is better for the stock market. So if I may, I'm going to read down through some, just the, the the ranking starting in top spot. So Clinton, the, the market performed best when Clinton was office, followed second by Barack Obama, Third place was Eisenhower, who, as we know, is Republican. Ronald Reagan was next, Republican. Uh, Harry Truman, 1945 to 1953, was the fifth best performing market, and he was a Democrat, followed by uh, W. Bush, George W. Bush, Republican, followed by Lyndon Johnson, who was Democrat, followed by Donald Trump, who was Republican, followed by Jimmy Carter, who was Democrat, followed by Gerald Ford, who was Republican, followed by Kennedy, who was Democrat. So it's literally... yeah. On off, Republican, Republican, Democrat, Republican, Democrat. So really, you can't infer uh, anything from the data. So, so for those people out there who think that a market performs better under one political party or the other, is they're simply misguided. That is not correct. What really matters is the backdrop, and presidents do the best with the resources they have to make sure that their country prospers, as I'm sure the new president will do. Um, and uh, that's really all we can say about it. So I, I absolutely do agree with Morgan's point, and it was cer- certainly backed up by Jeremy Segal in his book, Stocks for the Long Run. Yeah, and as Rory mentioned there, people seem to be under the mistaken belief sometimes that a new president comes in with a, a blank slate to enact all of their policies, when in reality, they're often quite restricted and what they can do. So yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how the next few months play out. Before we move on, I want to touch quickly on Netflix's earnings, which, as I mentioned, we're recording on Wednesday, and they reported on their quarter four and full year earnings last night. Um, it was a pretty impressive display, to say the least, by the streaming giant. But I want to focus on two of the big takeaways that people seem to be focusing on today. The fact that the company has now passed 200 million total subscribers and expectation that they'll become cash flow positive after this year. Emma, I'll come to you about the subscriber number. How significant is it that Netflix have now hit over 200 million total subscribers? It is significant. I mean, 200 million is just another number and it's just a milestone that we put you know, in our own minds. But yeah, actually, it's funny because I, when I first invested in Netflix, the ambition was to get to 6 million subscribers. And at the time, I thought that was outlandish. They they had, I think, 275,000 subscribers. And um, now we're talking about hundreds of millions. And it's really, it's great. I mean, you know, it's, it is, a, what's, I think, a bigger deal 
then the 200 million numbers, the fact that um, Netflix expects to be cash flow yeah. positive. So do you want to explain explain that just a little bit first? You know, what does it mean for a company to be cash flow positive? Well, it means they no longer need outside finan- financing and in Netflix's case to help with content development. So, and that is a big deal because really only quarters ago, Netflix was burning through cash in order to keep the content machine going. And um, what we're looking at now is that um, they are now standing financially on their own two feet. The content library is getting bigger. The brand has enlarged the backdrop of coronavirus to tailwind has basically pushed their business model forward. And, and, And conversations about Netflix versus Disney Plus are starting to bubble up, I've yeah. noticed, and, and and I won't necessarily, you know, go down that rabbit hole, but I, I believe it, they do not compete, believe it or not, because Disney Plus produces content for family. Netflix, you know, is for all people and it has slightly grittier content, but ultimately Netflix is a mega brand. Um, it's the mega brand that I think most adults interact with so you know when you look at fang or fat man depending on which of the giants you know the the list of giants you look at facebook amazon apple netflix tesla netflix is the brand that uh, when it comes to spending money i think most adults will have interacted with because not everyone will have a tesla not everyone buys into facebook and its family of products um you know, not everybody will shop on, on Amazon, although it's probably close. <laughs> but I think Netflix is one of those brands that has just permeated society. And if you speak to somebody and find they don't have Netflix, it's actually a surprise. Yeah. So um, I I think that Netflix will continue to go from strength to strength because the entire strategic delivery chain is, is theirs now at this stage. They have content creation, distribution, and um, ownership, which I think is a very, very powerful position. What do you think, Rory? I know one of the bare arguments that was often posited against Netflix was the fact that, you know, I think last year they had earmarked something like $17 billion to spend on content. Now, I'm not sure if they spent that full amount, but that's an incredible cash burn. Yeah, that's, I mean, the fact that is the biggest takeaway from this earnings by far was was that management said they no longer need to raise cash uh, they're able to finance the operations day to day um i mean it only took them 200 million subs and 25 billion dollar in revenue to get there but they got <laughs> there uh, and they believe they're going to be able to sustain this going forward they even floated the idea of stock buybacks which yeah. is just crazy to think i mean they did actually did do stock buybacks a long time ago. I was just about to say ago. that and they got absolutely slated for it, didn't they? Yeah, so, but I mean, the fact that they're even talking about it now is something that I don't think many people would have imagined two, three years ago. Some of the uh, some of the other kind of highlights from it was revenues are up 21.5% a quarter. That's the 31st consecutive quarter that they've increased revenues by more than 20%. Wow. Now, contrary to that, it was the lowest increase year over year growth they've seen since way back in 2013. Um but still, still growing at over 20% despite their size. Uh, Netflix series accounted for nine of the 10 most searched shows globally in 2020, uh, which again, that just shows you the incredible monopoly they have worldwide yeah. on mindshare when it comes to television programming. Um, and this, I thought this was interesting, you know, like the fact that Disney Plus, Disney Plus had a massive first year. I think they got 80, some 87 million paid subscribers and yet Netflix recorded the biggest year over year paid membership growth in their history so that blows the Disney plus competition 
argument right out the window. It's clear that people are going to have both uh, in the household because Disney Plus has a very specific target audience, which is which is children, and adults still want a form of entertainment. And Netflix is still able to grow in this environment. So, you know, it was really great report from from Netflix. I'm sure it's going to be the market hasn't opened as I'm speaking, but I'm sure it's going to be rewarded. Absolutely. So let's take a look at some of the other things that are going on in my Wall Street at the minute. So far this month, we've already published January's Stock of the Month selection, as well as our exclusive subscriber-only podcast, the Stock of the Month podcast. Earlier this week, we also added a brand new stock to the shortlist. Rory, you were talking recently about how hard it was to actually find good opportunities at the minute, considering that a lot of stocks are very highly valued. How did you find this company? Throwing darts at a dartboard. Yeah, that's one (laughs) or the other. Um, Now, this is a business I've been looking at for a while. It's in traditional retail to an extent, but also, of course, every retailer now has e commerce wing. And and it was a business that uh, it's one of those ones where there's certain things that don't tick all the boxes as as an investment that we usually make. I'm going to, people can read the piece, but certainly the owner is a bit of a. Um, spicy grape might be the best term to use. <laughs> a character. We say he's They're a character. He's a it's character. A character. But it's just an interesting business. I think it's it's one of the most interesting plays in the retail space. And yeah, it's, it was it was tough. It was a tough a tough month. Just every every stock you look at, there's great loads of great companies out there to invest in. Valuations have just become very steep right now. When can we? Mm, that was a great find, Rory. It's the first time I heard of the company when it appeared in the app. Um, really enjoyed reading about it. When can we expect the TikTok video pitching stock story? <laughs> <laughs> Silence. Okay, I'll move on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so remember, if you're not yet a member of the My Wall Street community but want to check out all of this great investing information, you can sign up today and start your free trial by just clicking the link in the notes for the show. Um, Jargon Busters, so... Emmett, the first question I'm going to throw over to you. And this question comes off the back of some recent announcements by companies like Zoom and Lemonade that they're planning secondary offerings of shares. Can you just explain really quickly what a secondary share offering actually is and why it's sometimes seen as a negative for investors? Yeah, so a secondary share offering in the context that we're discussing it for IPO'd companies is when a company has a follow-on uh, and issues new shares. So there's new shares out in the marketplace, um, which has the effect of dilution. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's generally the conversation is that, you know, secondary offering isn't good because of that dilution. But um, there's a couple of, like, that's not the true story, if you ask me. So, you know, what, in fact, it says the business is raising new capital to do new things. And if it's an early stage company and there's demand for those shares, you can actually infer from it that this is actually a good thing. So secondary offerings are when a company issues new shares after going public with the net effect of having some dilution, most, I suppose, easily read from the earnings per share. And um, and it also tells us that the company needs cash. And what it's raising the capital for is the real question. And, and um, I generally don't mind secondary offerings because businesses need forms of liquidity and and um, this is one of the many options available to the management teams of businesses. And it's probably a sign as well that the company's raising money for more R&D and things like that too. Absolutely. So, I mean, they, you know, they, they can, raising capital or finance debt 
you know, for acquisitions or as you say, R&D or to, to basically enter new markets, new products, pay down debt. There's so many different ways that a business can use its capital, require capital, and this is just one Absolutely. of them. Okay, so the next question, Rory, I'm going to throw over to you. And this is one we've actually talked about a few times on Stock Club. Um, recently, there's been a lot of interest in renewable energy and so-called green stocks, probably due to increasing awareness of our impact on the environment and also the transition of a more green-friendly administration into power in the U.S., if someone wanted to add green stocks or more renewable energy stocks to the portfolio, how would you advise them? Yeah, and this is a we've talked about this a couple of times before. It's one of the hardest ones for me to talk about because it's like renewable energy is something that absolutely aligns with the values of our company. You know, we want yeah. to invest in green energy companies, and we do think green energy is part of the future, but. I've valued green energy com- or companies before, solar companies before. It's very complex. It's similar to how we talk about energy companies. There's an er- area of specialization there, an area of expertise that I think most people don't have. It's not simply as easy as saying, right, well, this company makes solar panels, therefore they're going to be bigger in 10 years than they are today. So the best way of investing in that sense is to do something like through an ETF. And unfortunately, most ETFs that focus on green energy have had just terrible runs for the last 10 years. Now, there was a big spike starting around this time last year, and some of them have gone up multiple folds since then. Mm. But over the over the kind of the course of the past 10 years, they were terrible investments. So there wasn't really an outlet in order to invest into renewable energies in that sense. The best thing to do was to find a company that was linked to the renewable energy play, something like Tesla, for example. And, you know, obviously Tesla's done very well, but for, um, like finding individual renewable energy companies, unless you're, you've got some area of expertise in solar power generation or wind power generation, it's something I would definitely stay away from. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Um, finally, we always get a lot of questions in asking for our opinion on specific companies that are not in the My Wall Street shortlist. And recently, we were asked about a company called HubSpot. Um, this is a company that develops marketing software. Rory, you've done a bit of digging on HubSpot before, haven't you? Yeah, we used to be HubSpot customers. This is yeah. way back um, when the business was just starting. We actually went into their offices, which were just their European headquarters, were just around the corner from our Dublin offices and met the a sales rep there and they were lovely people and I do remember Emily I think you went in a separate time to me but I remember being there as well where it was just like people working all over the place like yeah. working on the floor work, I think it was before they moved into their new building they were obviously growing yeah. so yeah. fast at yeah. that stage they couldn't actually uh, seat people um, we should have ran, ran back to the office and recommended them saying these guys are just you know, <laughs> working at the seams you know? <laughs> I think you know what turned me off wanting to invest in them was that we because we used them and it, the platform just didn't really work for us did it it was like no it didn't I distinctly remember there was like there was no copy and face functionality <laughs> I remember that distinctly as well you couldn't I'm sure there was but you couldn't just right click and copy and paste yeah. something it used to drive me mad Um more than that, I think perhaps it just wasn't the right platform for us as a business and it took us a while to come to terms with that and there was a lock-in and I think it was it just kind of left a sour taste in, in our mouth. So that's a good example of like when a real-life experience probably blinds you to what is a broader opportunity. Yeah, you often talk about that in terms of Roku, don't you? Yeah, I've told the Roku story a couple of times. Etsy was another one where I had a really bad early experience with Etsy and I, I get, didn't even look at the stock for for years and uh, Jason Moser finally turned me around and looking at them now I mean I just took a look because I knew we were going to talk about it today as a company they've maintained pretty solid revenue growth over the last kind of 10 years seen 
good gross margin expansion, kind of what you'd expect. They do. Ha- I think they have a strength, which is barriers to exit, which we experienced <laughs> as, a, as a young business. Once you're in, it's hard to wean yourself off them. Um, yeah. And that's a great economic mode to have. However, just, I mean, then this is just a real kind of glance at the business now. Their net dollar retention isn't quite up there with its peers in the space. That would be a little bit of a red flag to me. I know that's going to happen mm. considering the market that they target is kind of small and medium-sized businesses. But that's the thing. If they try and then expand further up market, they're going to go against the likes of Salesforce, the likes of Adobe, and, and those guys are well positioned to to beat them in that space. And another thing, a little bit of a, not red flag, but like something that would worry me is they've never gotten into that top quadrant in Gartner's, uh, Gartner's research. Now that's only one research company, but as we've talked about before, that tends to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. CTOs do, do hold Gartner in higher regard. And if they don't see a company in that quadrant, they might end up passing on them just based on that alone. Okay, great. Thanks, Rory. Um, so let's move on to the final part of the podcast, which is, of course, the elevator pitch. Um, in our end of year podcast that went live about a month ago, Emmett, you made a very, very contrarian pitch that Macy's stock would become a two-bagger in the coming year. Um, a lot of our listeners really like this pitch, so I've decided to ask you guys today to give me your most contrarian stock pitch possible today. Of course, these pitches come with the big disclaimer that they're just an opinion and should not be taken as investment advice. Um Emmett, I'll come to you first. What's your n- next, I suppose, contrarian stock pitch? Uh, I'm going to go even hotter, whiter, hot risk than Macy's. Okay, hold on. Let me, let me just hold on to my chair. <laughs> like this is uber contrarian. And I have to say that AMC Cinema Group is in intensive care and it may not pull through. It is, we all know the backdrop. I don't need to tell our mm. listeners why cinemas are in trouble. But last night, and as you said earlier, um, James, we're recording this on Wednesday uh, afternoon. But last night, Tuesday evening, uh, AMC announced that they had a new line of credit. Now, let me just give just a very quick uh, explanation of AMC at the moment. They're $3 and change. They were something like $33 about four Four years ago, their market cap, as I as I speak, is about six hundred and sixty million dollars, and I presume the vast majority of their um, their cinemas are shut. And back in October, they warned through an SEC filing that they uh, they they were in deep trouble. And they said, and I quote, the company anticipates that existing cash resources will be largely depleted by the end of 2020 or early 2021. And as you can imagine, shares went further south. So they fa- effectively announced to the SEC last October that they were dead. Yeah. Now, last night, they uh, they jumped 30% in after hours trading and it's three o'clock. I presume the markets are open now and I don't know where, where they're trading at the moment, but I'd be quite sure it's above three books. And um, and they said that uh, that they have announced or they announced last night that they're going to get $100 million in debt with an interest rate of 15% and that the company doesn't have to make its first interest payment until July. So what we're looking at here is a lifeline. And the reason this is a contrarian pick is that we're looking at a penny stock at three bucks and change um, with a lifeline to get to midsummer. And what we are doing here, and I hate to use the word bet, I never use the word bet in this profession because we don't make bets, but this yeah. is a bet on cinemas reopening by midsummer. 
AMC being one of those and them taking in enough money to furnish the debt and if they manage to get the whole uh, kit and caboodle under control I believe that three books will look something like the lowest point in their history wow. that is that is a contrarian bet um, <laughs> oh it's one, extreme no, I like extreme it. yeah, like, I, I'm a big fan of cinemas I, I wouldn't definitely wouldn't be investing in a cinema stock at the moment but you know, I, I I think some some cinema chain has to survive. We'll we'll wait and see. Rory, what about you? Yeah, over the long term, I'm going to stick with one in our showroom, and I think that over the long term, it is going to get out of a rut that it's in, and that's Eventbrite. Yeah, it's basically been a loser from the day we added it. Maybe it was a two years ago now, and and that was a kind of combination between a botched or definitely you know not perfectly executed um, acquisition of one of their biggest competitors which was Take a Fly and then obviously the global pandemic which cancelled all events globally for the last 12 months so the reason I'm going to stick with it is because I still like the business I think the area that they operate in the local event is going to be a massive part of the entertainment market going forward over the next 10 decades I still like management despite the, the hiccups they've had along the road and I think that this pandemic for all the damage that it's caused could at least give them that breathing space in order to iron out the problems that they had with that big acquisition and um, now the big kind of disclaimer on that is it only works out if they survive because yeah. it's and you know a company can't survive on the 20 30 million revenue that they're generating each quarter now um so that's the kind of disclaimer on it can they can they maintain uh the capital to survive and how long this pandemic is going to last yeah absolutely i'm a, I'm a shareholder in eventbrite so i really hope you're right <laughs> um so that's it from this week's stock club don't forget about all the great new stuff in my wall street at the moment if there's anything you want us to discuss or explain on the next episode please make sure to get in touch with us you can find us on twitter that's at my wall street hq or email us at pod at mywallstreet.com that's p-o-d at mywallstreet.com don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club and if you're enjoying the podcast, leave a review for us on whatever platform you listen to us on. From the three of us here today, we'll talk to you in two weeks. Happy investing. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.